morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've entitled the message this morning, Is Islam a Religion of Peace? We've learned a new vocabulary in recent years. Words like Islam, Allah, Mohammed, Jihad, Taliban, ISIS. You know, as Americans now, we seem to hear these words a lot. But do you know what they mean? How many of you understand Islam? How many of you could give us an explanation of what Islam is, what they believe, what they teach, what they're about? Some of you would say, well, they wear scarves on their heads or they wear something. You know, other than that, do we know anything about them? Well, see, the problem is, if you don't know what it teaches, then you're bound to fall prey to the lies that we hear repeatedly from our politicians and the media. That Islam is a religion of peace. Now, we hear that groups like ISIS and other Islamic terrorists do not represent Islam. Are we being lied to? Or is Islam really a religion of peace? Or maybe a better question would be, Islam is Islam even a religion? And seeking to find answers to these questions, let's begin with a brief history of Islam. I want to begin by telling you where it all started, how this all came about. Muhammad is the founder of Islam. Muhammad was born on the Arabian Peninsula in the town of Mecca. I'm sure you've all heard of Mecca, right? You're familiar with that? You know, they pray towards Mecca. Muhammad was born around 570 A.D. All right, so this is quite a while after Christ. He was born to a widowed mother who died when he was just six years old. So he grew up as an orphan on the margins of society, an area that was controlled by tribal chiefs and trading merchants. I mean, his home is basically the desert, okay? Nothing's out there, you know, traveling caravans, I mean, in tribal groups that got together. He worked for his uncle, Abu Talib, as a camel herder. Although his uncle had some standing in the community, he was just a lowly camel herder until he was the age 25. And then he married, he met and married a wealthy widow who was involved in the, in this trading business. All right. She was 15 years older than him, but she took him in and he started getting involved in this trade. Now his wife's trading business gave Mohammed an opportunity to travel you know, that he didn't have. I mean, he's in this little tribal community there in Mecca. Now he's traveling all around with these different caravans and he has access to different populations and he's learning while he's doing this, all right? He would later use this to to his advantage by incorporating the stories he had come across into his revelations from Allah, all right? Particularly the tales from earlier re- uh, religion such as Judaism and Christianity. So while he's traveling around in these caravans, he's meeting Jews, he's meeting Christians, he's hearing about them, things he never really knew before. Alright, so now as he gets a little older, he's uh, kind of attained a comfortable lifestyle, and so he's got some idle time. And, you know, that wealth affords that. So Muhammad would wander off occasionally into the caves and do some meditation and some contemplation. One day at the age of 40... He told his wife that he was visited by the angel Gabriel in a dream. Now, where do you think he got Gabriel from? Well, that's from the Bible, okay? And he was familiar with Jews. He was familiar with Christians. So he heard about Gabriel. So he had a visit from Gabriel in a dream. And this began a series of revelations which lasted almost 23 years, all right, until his death. And these were the revelations that came from Allah, he'd said, And these he put down and wrote in the Quran. Now, the Quran is a collection of words that Muhammad attributed to Allah. All right, this is the holy book of Islam. All right, the Quran. They also have the Hadith, which is a collection of narrations of the life and deeds of Muhammad. You want to learn about what he did, you know, all this stuff, it's there. Okay, then we have the Siyah, which is a record, a biography basically, and then the Sunnah, which is Muhammad's way of life on which Islamic law, Sharia, is based. So these are all, you know, teachings that you'll hear about in Islam. All right, and again, he got the Quran from the angel Gabriel. Now, with his wife's influence and support, Muhammad proclaimed himself a prophet in the same lineage as that of Abraham and Yeshua, and he began trying to convert those around him to this new religion. Now, in Mecca, 
It was a very idolatrous city. They had a little building, like it was a square building in the center there of Mecca called the Kaaba. And in the Kaaba there, every idol you can imagine. And so these trading caravans come through, they go to the Kaaba, and they worship. Well, now he believes that Allah is the one true God. So, you know, he's preaching against this. You've got to do away with those idols. You've got to worship the one and the true God. All right? And so he would preach the Quran to those, you know, that he was writing. He would preach to those about Allah and uh, the one true faith. Now, according to early Muslim historians... The Meccans didn't mind Muhammad practicing his religion, nor did they feel threatened by it. All right, he's worshiping one God, we got a bunch of them, that's not a problem. But this changed only after the self-proclaimed prophet began attacking their religion, including the customs and, you know, he's really coming against these people. Now, this is a problem because these traders that are coming through, they come there to worship at Mecca, but if they're not coming... Because they're getting harassed and we're cutting off a lot of finances for Mecca. Alright? Well, Muhammad was allowed to attack the local customs for about 13 years. I mean, they just put up with them. They tolerated them. Even though the town's economy depended on this pilgrimage. As I said, this, this Kaaba, you know, this one building full of all these different idols, they all came. didn't matter what they believed because they could go in there and this was their sacred building and they could worship whoever they wanted to worship. Well, at first, Muhammad was only successful with friends and family. After 13 years as a street preacher, basically, he could boast of about 100 determined followers who called themselves Muslims. All right? 13 years, got about 100 Muslims. Now, the death of his uncle... Abu Talib in 819 left Muhammad without a protector against the Meccan leadership, which was gradually losing patience with him. Muhammad's search for political alliance led him to make a treaty against the Meccans with the people of Medina, another Arab city further to the north. This was the last straw for the Meccans. They had about enough of this, so they basically drove him out of there trying to kill him. All right. Now, The year that Muhammad fled Mecca for Medina was 622. Now that's a very important year for them because this marks the beginning of the Muslim calendar. Alright? See, they had an exodus from Mecca to Medina and that began their calendars. That sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, just like, you know, at the Exodus with the children of Israel, that began their religious calendar. Alright, so he's taking a lot of things from Judaism. All right, you see that as you read the Quran, you see the the stuff that he took from Christianity, the stuff that he takes from um, Israel and the, the scriptures there. Well, Muhammad's message quickly became more intolerant as he got to Medina and more ruthless because he was gaining power. Islam's holiest book clearly reflects this contrast with the later parts of the Quran adding violence and earthly defeats at the hands of Muslims to the woes of eternal damnation and earlier parts of the book promise. So while he was in Mecca, you know, he would he would tell them, you know, you're going to be judged, you're going to go into eternal fires of hell if you don't, you know, get on board. Well, as he came into power, the verses changed to you're going to be conquered, we're going to kill you. All right, cuz now he has power. And you see this as you go through the Quran. It was at Medina that Islam evolved to a re- from a relatively peaceful religion borrowed from others into a military force that was intended to govern all aspects of society. Now, during the last 10 years of Muhammad's life, infidels were evicted and enslaved, converted upon point of death, and even rounded up and slaughtered depending on expediency. They say he, in the last 10 years of his life, he led over 66 wars. 66 battles that he was involved in. Now, to fund his quest for control, Muhammad first, as he got to Medina, he directed his followers to start raiding Mecca caravans. And he he said, do it during the holy months. That way the victims would least expect it. This was despite the fact that the Meccans, they weren't bothering him at all. Remember, this is a peaceful religion, okay? But he needs funds, so let's start attacking the caravans. He knew a lot about the caravans. He was involved in that business, so they started attacking him. Well, he provided his people with convenient revelations from Allah, which allowed them to murder innocent drivers and steal their property. 
I mean, see, this is, he's writing this book as he goes along, okay? So as he writes it, he writes in what he needs for that particular point in time. The people around him gradually developed a lust for things that could be taken in battle, including material comforts, captured women and children. Often the people captured in battle will be brought before this self-proclaimed prophet where they'd plead for their lives. But he was just merciless. He put them to death, often in horrible ways. The raids on the caravans preceded the first major battle involved in the Muslim army. They got to the point where they're sick of the, you know, the caravans being attacked, so they sent an army out to protect them at the Battle of Badar. This was the spot where the Meccans had decided, we've had enough of this. I think, you know, they had a bunch of seven or eight caravans had been raided, and they put up no resistance, and finally they sent an army out there and said, this has got to stop. Well, he beat them at that time. And the Muslims today claim they only attack others in self-defense. This clearly wasn't the case with Muhammad. All right, and here's what you have to understand about Muhammad. Muhammad is the perfect man, according to Islam. Perfect in every way. Everything he did was perfect. I mean, seriously. And so every Muslim man is to imitate Muhammad. Keep that in mind. That's very important. It got to the point where he had to compel his reluctant warriors with promises of paradise and assurances that their religion was more important than the lives of others. So he's writing this into the Quran. So yeah, it's okay. Uh, Allah says you can go attack the caravan. He said, you know, and then they, they had verses against adult, adultery. Adultery, okay? <laughs> adultery in there. So they were, when they raided these caravans, they were raping the women, so they said, ah, we got a problem here, isn't this? Adul-? And so they wrote new verses in there. Muhammad wrote new verses and that said, if you take women in battle, it's okay to rape them. Alright? Just to give them peace of mind in what they were doing. Now he defeated, as I said, the Meccan army at Badr and emboldened them to become more in conquering and taking over. They eventually went back to Medina and they conquered it. And he went into the Kaaba and he cleared out all the idols out of the Kaaba. And this is the place where only Allah is worshipped. And they still worship there today. Alright? So he went back in there, took over that city, cleared the Kaaba. All the idols are gone. Now we're worshipping the one true God, he said, who was Allah. And the tribes around them, Muslims, began to convert to Islam out of self-preservation. Because Muhammad told his followers that Muslims were meant to rule over all people. Supremacist teaching became the driving force behind jihad, which became the driving force behind Islam. Alright, we're here to conquer, we're to take over all these people. Islam became centered completely around its founder, Muhammad. Of all the prophets, new converts are required to affirm only the legitimacy of Muhammad. The Muslim leader even shares the shahada. With Allah. Now the Shahada is their confession of faith. And what the Muslims say, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. That's the Shahada. That's very important. You hear that constantly out of the mouth of Muslims. So Muhammad is like, he's a key figure. I mean, he's right under Allah, basically. To this day, every Muslim has to bow down five times a day toward Mecca, toward the Kaaba, Muhammad's birthplace. And say, there is no God but Allah. And Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Well, Muhammad died of a fever in 632 at the age of 63. With his violent religion spread over most of the Arabian Peninsula. He basically took over that. It's amazing the conquest and what they acquired in such little time. Well, over the next 14 centuries, the bloody legacy of this individual would be a constant challenge to those living on the borders of Islam's political power. They were trying to take over everything. The violence that Muslims' army would visit on the people across North America, the Middle East, Europe, Asia, and the Indian subcontinent is a tribute to the founder who practiced and promoted subjugation, rape, murder, and forced conversion. You know, people became Muslims because you either become a Muslim or you die. That's your only choice. In his 1996 book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, Harvard Samuel P. Huntington warned us of deluding ourselves about the true nature of the Islamic threat. He says, some Westerners, including President Bill Clinton, it went on from every president after that, Bush, um, you know, now today, Obama, they're all saying the same thing. Um, 
have argued that the West does not have problems with Islam, but only with violent Islamic extremists. All right, Huntington continues, 1,400 years of history demonstrate otherwise. He said, you just got to look at history. In Muhammad's words, I have been ordered to fight the people till they say, none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. These are his words. And if they say so, pray like our prayers, face our Kaabah, and slaughter as we slaughter, then their blood and their property will be sacred to us, and we will not interfere with them. An Indonesian cleric, Abu Bakar Bashir, recently put it, if the West wants to have peace, they have to accept Islamic rule. So it is a religion of peace. They'll bring peace once you bow to Allah. All right. Now the Quran states, all right. So does Islam sound like a religion of peace? I mean, if you just look at its history, it doesn't really sound all that peaceful. Does it even sound like a religion? Do you believe this or, or you die? Well, the Quran states, Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Those who follow him are harsh to unbelievers, but merciful to one another. All right? So if you're a Muslim, you're okay. If you're not, look out. Well, let me share with you some of Islam's best contributions to peace. Okay? On December 8th, 2015, this is this year, this month, in Kandahar, Afghanistan, nearly 40 civilians are slaughtered when Taliban fundamentalists pour machine gun fire into a crowded market. This is the religion of peace. On December 8th, 2015, in Tulanan, Philippines, three villagers are shot dead by Moro Islamists. On December 6, 2015, in Tripoli, Libya, Sharia advocates beheaded two men for sorcery in a public event. On December 6, 2015, in Adin, Yemen, a suicide car bomber turns seven apostates into rubble. An apostate someone who was a Muslim and they left, or tried to leave. This is how they get rid of apostates, they kill them. All right. On December 5, 2015, in Chad, three female suicide bombers massacre 27 patrons at a local market. On December 4, 2015, in Ramada, Iraq, five suicide car bombers take over two dozen Iraqis. All right. Now, many will say these are just radical Muslims. They don't represent true Islam. You'll hear that over and over. Now, let me ask you something. If you want to know what Christianity teaches... Where do you go? Okay. Do you examine the actions of different Christians? I want to know what Christianity believes. So let me look at some Christians. <laughs> you might not find out too much that way. Okay? What if someone wanted to know what Christians believe so they started following and examining Westboro Baptist Church? Where they get an idea what Christianity is about? They think it was filled with hate. They think, you know, no, they don't represent Christianity. If you want to know what Christianity teaches, you go to the teachings, which is the Bible. Study the Bible to find out what they believe. Because people who say they're following something don't necessarily always do it. Right? So if you want to know what Islam teaches, where do you go? You go to the Quran. You go to the Hadith. You find out what the writings say. This is what they, the religion, believes. There will always be people within a group who don't follow the teaching of the group. Always be that. So let, if you want to know what it teaches, go back to the source. So let's look at what Islam teaches from their own writings and see if the terrorists are a fringe group or if they represent true Islam. Islam means submission. Okay? I want you to keep that in your mind as we go through this. All right? That's what Islam means. Submission. And this is what Muhammad wants to bring. Submission. To the world. Alright? Uh, Islam means one who is wholly surrendered to the will of Allah. That's their word for God. Islam consists in belief and practice. Now before we look at what the Quran says about violence, I want to show you what it teaches about our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. See, Christians believe fundamentally of necessity there's one true God. The true God is not Allah. 
The true God is not Krishna. The true God is not the God of Joseph Smith or Buddha or of the Jews. The true God is the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Look at John wrote in 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him is true, in His Son, Yeshua the Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So Yeshua is the true God. Christianity is all about Yeshua. Apart from Christ, there's no salvation. He's the only true God. So how does Christianity differ from Islam? Well, it differs in many ways. But one of the main issues we want to see doctrinally is what they believe about Yeshua. Because Jesus is all through the Quran. Let me give you a couple quotes. Surah 5 states, In blasphemy indeed are those who say that Allah is Christ, the Son of Mary. Alright, you get what they're saying there? Yeshua is not God. Alright? Say, who then hath the least power against Allah, if his will were to destroy Christ, the son of Mary, his mother, and all everyone that is of the earth? Now, let me, let me share with you something here about Allah. In Ezra, and in Daniel, and only one time in Jeremiah, it's found 98 times, this word. The word for God, translated from the Chaldean, is Allah. Allah is our word. That's the word for Yahweh. Alright, in Daniel, in Ezra, and once in Jeremiah, Allah. So, Allah is just the word for God. But they're defining who this God is. He's not Christ. Alright? Surah 5 goes on to say, For to Allah belongeth the dominion of the heavens and the earth and all that is between. He createth what He pleases, for Allah hath power over all things. See, he's taken just verses from, you know, the scriptures about our God and put them in the Quran. Now, the Quran says it's blasphemy to say that the creator God is Yeshua the Christ. But, you know, that's in fact what the Bible teaches in Colossians 1, 16 and 8 through 18. He is the creator. The Quran also says the similitude of Jesus before Allah is that of Adam. He created him from dust, then said to him, be, and he was. So the Quran says that God created Jesus, but the Bible says in John 1 that Christ created all things. The Quran also says Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Listen, people, to the words of the Bible. 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You deny Christ, you don't have the Father. You're Antichrist. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. Now listen, this condemns not only Islam, but Judaism as well. So as you can see, Christianity and Islam are not compatible. Not at all. So how does one become a Muslim? I mean, if you wanted to convert, what do you got to do? Well, every court of Islam, and these courts are set up, they, they institute the Sharia law. Every court is bound to recognize that every adult male or female who consciously and solemnly witness that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of, of Allah is to be recognized as a Muslim. The Shahada, that's what makes you a Muslim. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. You say that sincerely, mean it. In other words, now you're a Muslim. All right? That's what it's about. These people now are entitled to privileges and rights of a Muslim, and they're bound by all the duties and obligations of Islamic law. Now, some of the things that are required for Muslims to believe are to believe in Allah, God, in his existence, his right to be worshipped, his oneness, his attributes, and his right to legislate. To believe in God's angels. To believe in the Holy Quran and the other books, Torah, Gospel of Jesus, Psalms of David. Now, isn't that an interesting statement of faith there? Okay? You know what's really interesting about this? The Gospel contradicts the Quran at so many points, but see, one of the things you have to believe in, you have to believe in the Quran and the other holy books. The Torah, which a lot of Muslim 
stuff comes from, and the gospel of Jesus. Now, what in the world? Yeshua said, love your enemies. Muhammad said, kill your enemies. So, we got a problem there, all right? But this is one of their things they have to believe in. To believe in God's messengers, of whom Adam was the first and the prophet Muhammad was the last. He's the last prophet, no more after him. To believe in the resurrection and the day of judgment. I wonder where they got that from. <laughs> to believe in divine preordination. They believe in you know, predestination. Now, this list of beliefs is accepted as basic to belief in Islam by every sect and school of thought. And by the way, there are different types of groups within Islam. I think you're aware of that. you got the Sunni Muslims. And the Sunni Muslims make up about 80% of Muslims. So when you talk about Muslims, usually that's what people are talking about, the Sunni Muslims. You have Shiite Muslims. They define their basic teachings differently than the Orthodox. And then you got Sufi Muslims uh, who gather themselves in brotherhoods and emphasize more matters of emotion in the heart. So you got these different groups, but basically when you're talking about Muslims, you're talking about Sunnis. All right? Let me share with you the five pillars of Islam. This is the framework of Muslim life. These five pillars of Islam are the five obligations that every Muslim must satisfy in order to live a good and responsible life according to Islam. These pillars are Shahada, the witness. Alright, and we've already gone over this. This is basically, you have to say, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. They would say this every time they pray. Alright, they say this constantly. Alright, that's the first pillar. Second pillar is Salit. This is ritual prayers. Five times a day, they get out their little mat, they lay their mat down, they face Mecca, and they do their prayers. Alright? It's required. I'm sure you've seen it. I was at the beach a couple months ago, and I saw a guy in between two parked cars at the beach. Got out as he was having fun at the beach, I guess, time to pray. Got out his mat, laid it down in between the cars, and started going through the, you know, the deal there. I thought, okay, that's interesting. Then we have zakat, the paying of alms. This is a mandatory tax that's levied annually upon the Muslim's possession. And this tax is to be distributed to the poor. Muslim poor. Okay? Let's don't make that mistake. According to Sirah 2, 43. And then we have the slam, which is the, the fast of Ramadan. This obligatory fast commemorates the revelation of the Quran. Muslims fast approximately 29 to 30 days during Ramadan. The month of Ramadan is determined by the lunar calendar, just like the Jews, they go off for lunar calendar. From the time of the dawn to the end of daylight, they are to abstain from food and water. All right, just during the light hours. But they're also to abstain from sexual intercourse. I'll get this slander, profane speech. And other actions considered uncharacteristic of pious behavior. So don't do these things while you're fasting. I guess it's okay to do them other times. But during the fast, you know, don't slander anybody and watch your speech and be good, be good. All right. I just thought that was kind of strange. All right. And then we have Hajj. All right. At least one pilgrimage to Mecca in one's lifetime. You're going to be a good Muslim. You've got to go to Mecca. This is a journey that the Muslim is obliged to take to the site of the Kaaba and other religious sites in Mecca. And it's a big, big deal. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the, you know, the Hajj and Kaaba there where there's, I mean, the courtyard is just filled with thousands, about thousands of people. They're all dressed the same. They all put this white, they have a two-piece garment they're supposed to wear. They put this two-piece garment, take off their clothes, put this on, they wash themselves, they get in it and they just march in a circle around the Kaaba. They claim that Moses built this Kaaba, which I thought was very interesting, you know. But they march around, all right? They perform their, their religious rituals and prayers as they performed by the first, as they were performed by, they say, by the prophet Muhammad and his followers. Uh, and then, like I said, they march around the Kaaba. All right, this pillar is only obligatory upon those who are physically able and financially able to do it. Which I thought was nice. You know, if you really can't afford to go, then you don't have to. If you're not physically able to do it, then you don't have to. But you're supposed to send an offering. Okay? And complete the Hajj or Umrah and the service of Allah. But if you are prevented from completing it, 
send an offering for sacrifice such as you may find. So if you can't make the pilgrimage, then, you know, send some offering in there. All right. Now, you look at these pillars and I'm like, I don't really have a problem with any of those. Do you? I mean, have you got your testimony to what your faith is, you know, that there's only one God and it's Allah, you know, Muhammad's part. That's okay, you know. That's a lot. Rich, you want to pray? I got no problem with that, you know, five times a day. If you work for me, you know, and you had to give a break five times a day, I might have a problem. And employers are having to do that today with the Muslim employees. They're requiring that they have the time, these breaks, to go and do their prayers. All right? As a Christian, ask for a break to go pray and see what you get. Okay? Uh, the fast, you know, they want to fast, or they're holy month. I don't have a problem with that. A pilgrimage to Mecca, I don't have a problem with any of these things. They seem like religious observance. There's just nothing, I don't get, you know, what's the big deal here? Well, there's one more. Now, wait a minute, it says five pillars of Islam. You got five up there, right? Right. But let me add one. Jihad. The struggle. Now, individual efforts to serve Allah or engage in war against the enemies of Islam. This jihad is a concept so integral to Islam that many Muslims believe it constitutes a sixth pillar of Islam. This is from the Muslims themselves. They say you need to add this as a sixth pillar. Some of the moderate Muslims, they take jihad to mean inner struggle. So yeah, we're peaceful, but this is just an inner... When we talk about jihad, we're talking about an inner struggle that we have against sin or against society or whatever we're battling in ourselves, all right? And these Muslims, these moderate Muslims, will often quote verses from the Quran that teach peace and tolerance. Verses such as, Sirah 109, In the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful, say, O disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship, nor do I worship, nor do you worship what I worship, nor do I serve what you serve, nor you serve what I serve. You have your way, and I have my way. That sounds tolerant, doesn't it? Okay, you guys do what you do, I'll do what I do, and everybody will be alright. That sounds good. Alright, or they may quote verses like this, there should be no compulsion in religion. Sarah too. They say, see, we don't compulse you, we don't force you to believe what we believe, there's no compulsion, you believe what you, will believe what we believe, alright? They use these verses as evidence that Islam is a religion of peace. And let me tell you, you get in a a discussion with a Muslim and they're going to bring up these verses. And they're going to tell you, no, we're peaceful. We don't, you know. Westernized Muslims pick the verses of the Quran that they find most attractive. And they use these verses to sanitize the rest of the Quran. But is this the correct way to interpret the Quran? You just pick out the verses you like? Unfortunately, the answer is no. The Quran represents, the Quran literally tells us how to interpret the Quran. They have what's called the doctrine of abrogation. Alright? Now, the Quran is one book, alright, written by one man during his lifetime. No other input in this book but him. He got it from Gabriel, he says, You know, from Allah to Gabriel to him, but it's all one man. Now, how different from that is what the Bible has to say? The Bible is made up of 66 individual books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years, and yet it's one book. There's no contradictions. There are no disagreements. How do you get that to happen? How do you get two people to write something that don't disagree with one another? But here you got one book written by one man and you got great contradictions. That seems weird, doesn't it? I mean, you're writing this, you ought to be able to fix that out. The Quran has contradictory statements, but it tells us how to deal with the contradictions. It's explained in the Quran that if you have two passages that contradict each other, the one written later supersedes the one written earlier. Okay? So all you got to do is find out which passages wouldn't last, and that's don't throw out the other ones, all right? According to the Quran, when Muslims faced, were faced with conflicting commands, they aren't supposed to pick the one they like the best. Rather, they go to history and see which verse was revealed last. Whichever verse came last is to abrogate or cancel earlier verses. Surah 2, 106 says, Whatever verse we shall abrogate, we're going to get rid of this first. Or cause thee to forget, we'll bring a better 
the one to it. Okay, don't worry, you're getting another one. This will be better. Or one like unto it. Dost thou not know that Allah is almighty? In other words, if he changes his mind, that's okay. He's almighty. He can do that. All right? He can change and give you a new one. So there is the doctrine of abrogation. It's in the Quran. You can look it up. Uh, if you want to, you know, do any research in the Quran, there's Bible. Go to the app store. And uh, I downloaded a Quran as an app, a very good app. And, uh, I mean, it's just really easy to search through the Quran. You can look through all the different surahs and find out what they say. You can search it. So it, it's a real good opportunity for you to find out exactly what it says. But this is their doctrine. Isn't that nice? If a verse comes later, it does away with one that comes earlier. When we substitute one revelation for another, and Allah knoweth best, what he reveals in stages, they say. You see that? So that's because this is new stuff, so it's coming now and it cancels out the old stuff. Thou art but a forger, someone might say. But most of them understand not, okay? In early Islam, for example, wine drinking and gambling were allowed. Later, they're not allowed. Look at Surah 2. They ask thee concerning wine and gambling. Say, in them is great sin and some profit. How's that for a verse? It's great sin, but it's some profit. So there's some profit in great sin. That's how I would interpret that, right? For men. But the sin is greater than the profit. Mm. Uh, they ask thee how much they are to spend, say, what is beyond your needs? Thus doth Allah make clear to you his signs in order that you may consider. So, here's what's interesting. These peaceful, tolerant passages that Muslims will quote to you, Western Muslims, were written early in Muhammad's career. The more violent, less tolerant passages came later, and thus they supersede the peaceful passages. Now, I, let me tell you something. Western Muslims don't even understand this. They really don't. So let's look at some of the later passages, the ones that the westernized Muslims don't want to... Surah 8, Your Lord inspired the angels. I am with you. So support those who believe. I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve. So strike above the neck and strike off every fingertip of theirs. What do you think you're going to get if you strike above the neck? Your head, okay? Strike them in the head, strike off their fingertips. That is because they oppose Allah and His Messenger. Whoever opposes Allah and His Messenger, Allah is severe in retribution. Now, here's the interesting thing. Oppose here is very, very broad. Not believing Allah is opposing Allah. So you can be struck for that. That sounds like Islam is a religion of peace or even a religion of all, at all. You know, they don't believe, strike them in the head. Strike off their fingers. Surah 8, 65. O prophet, rouse the believers to kill. Now, you see there, kill is in, in brackets. I put that in there. Because the English version of the Quran I'm using says battle. But if you go back to the original Arabic, it says kill. But see, when you get a westernized version of the Quran in English, when they write it in English, they soften it up a little bit, okay? Because, you know, we're trying to have a nice Quran here, so they, they, they work on these words and try to make them a little more palatable. Oh, prophet, rouse the believers to kill. If there are 20 steadfast among you, they will defeat 200. If there are 100 of you, they will defeat thousands of those who disbelieve. Because they are a people who do not understand. Now notice why they're attacking and killing these people. They disbelieve. They don't believe what they believe, so let's kill them. Alright? Surah 2. And kill them wherever you overtake them. And expel them from where they had expelled you. Oppression is more serious than murder. Now you understand what they're saying here? The oppression of Muslims is a more serious offense than their murder of you. So if you're oppressing them, they can kill you. And again, oppression is a very, very broad word. They take it to just as not by not believing in Allah, you are oppressing them. But do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they fight you there. If they fight you, then kill them. 
Such is the retribution of disbelievers. So, you know, we're going to kill the disbelievers. Surah 5. O you who believe, do not take the Jews and the Christians as allies. Some of them are allies of one another. Whoever of you allies himself with them is one of them. Allah does not guide the wrongdoing people. All right, so we got the Jews and the Christians here specifically, you know, being targeted. Surah 9. When the sacred months have passed, kill the polytheists. All right? Just kill them wherever you find them and capture them and besiege them and lie in wait for them at every ambush. But if they repent, in other words, if they come to believe in Allah and perform the prayers and pay the alms, then let them go their way. Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. If you do what he wants you to do. Okay, if you believe in him, if you don't believe in him, guess what? Kill him. You want to know where ISIS gets its marching orders? It's from the Quran. They're faithful Islamists. That's all they're doing. They're just following their holy book. Doing what it says to do. Now, classical theologians accept that the Medinan chapters supersede Meccan chapters. Alright? The ones that he wrote in Medina supersede those he wrote in Mecca. Because, you know, when he was at Mecca, they were in peace. There are just over a hundred verses about instructions to kill innocent people who aren't Muslims. So as you can see, the Quran teaches violence. ISIS, these other terrorists, are simply following the religion of Islam. Islam, people, is not a religion of peace. It's not. All you have to do is go to the Quran. And I challenge you to do this yourself. Don't believe me. I've told you over and over. Don't believe what I say. I'm trying to be faithful to what I see found in there. And like I said, it's easy to go to the writings and dig them up. The eastern, ver- the, the western version is, you know, played down a little bit, you know, but you can find the truth in there. Another example of violence in Islam is the way it deals with the thief in Sharia law. The law that all Muslims are under, Sharia law, says, and as for the man who steals and the woman who steals, cut off their hands as a punishment. For what they have earned, an exemplary punishment from Allah, and Allah is mighty wise. In other words, Allah knows what he's doing. He's wise, so just cut off their hand. Now, Muslims do this even to their children. If a child were to steal out of hunger, a true Muslim would not show compassion and feed the child. They would sever his hand at the wrist to drive home the lesson of Allah, Sharia law. And people, this is happening in Muslim-dominated countries right now. Okay? It's going on. Alright, now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at three stages of jihad. Because it's so important that we understand this. It'll help you understand what's going on. And most of this information comes from David Wood, who has a website called AnsweringMuslims.com. Great website. If you want some information, you want to know what they believe. When we turn to Islam's theological sources and historical writings, the Quran, the Hadith, the Sirah, we find that there are three stages in the call to jihad, depending on the status of Muslims in society. All right? Stage one is live in peace with non-Muslims and preach a message of tolerance. So when Muslims are completely outnumbered and they can't possibly win a physical confrontation with unbelievers, they're to live in peace with non-Muslims and they preach this message of tolerance. We see this example of this stage when Muhammad and his followers were a persecuted minority in Mecca. Since the Muslims were entirely outnumbered, the revelations Muhammad revealed during that stage, you shall have your religion, I shall have my religion. Because they couldn't do anything about it. So they just said, oh, we're tolerant. They called for religious tolerance. And they proclaimed a future punishment rather than a worldly punishment for unbelievers. In stage one. This stage uses takiyah. Now this is something you got to get, okay? Takiyah is a Muslim principle and it means concealing Islam's true intention in order to protect the Muslim community. Muslims are allowed to lie. They're allowed to deceive believers. They're allowed to lie to Muslims. Okay, You can lie to a Muslim if it will smooth things over. Okay, 
But you can lie. You're, you're definitely to lie to non-believers. All right? About the intentions, about the promotions of Islam. You, you're a lie to them. All right? That stage is fine. You take that position. You claim a Kia, uh, Takia, and you lie to them. Because that will keep you from being persecuted. Okay? And we're, they're crying today. Oh, you know, you're persecuting us because, you know, we're this. Well, you want to talk about persecution? Try being a Christian in Saudi Arabia. Then you'll see what persecution is all about. You'll get killed for having a Bible. But they're crying, oh, you're persecuting us. Yeah, but that's because that's the first stage of jihad. You take the, the vic, you take the position of a victim. We're victims here. We're nice people. We don't want anybody to do any harm. All right, well, then we'll go to stage two. When there are enough Muslims and resources to defend Islamic community, Muslims are called to engage in defensive jihad. This is a stage of terrorism. Thus, when Muhammad had formed alliances with various groups outside of Mecca and the Muslim community had become large enough to begin fighting, Muhammad received this in Surah 22. Permission to fight is given to those upon whom war is made because they are oppressed. And most assuredly, Allah is well able to assist them. Those who have been expelled from their homes without a just cause, except that they say, our Lord is Allah. See, now he can go back to Mecca and conquer that place because they've been persecuted there. All right. Although Muslims in the West often pretend that Islam only allows for defensive fighting, later revelations show otherwise. So in this stage, Muslims who feel oppressed, they're allowed to fight. We all know that America is oppressing Muslims. Okay, because this doesn't have to be physical oppression. And when you oppress them, they're allowed to fight. And we're seeing more jihad taking place in this country. Just, you know, 11 days ago, you know, that couple, man and his wife, you know, he left his baby behind, a six-month-old child behind, the mother did, and went in with her AR-15 and just started shooting up people. All right? But then people were saying, well, let's, no, let's be not quick to call this terrorism. This might just be workplace violence. Well, then they couldn't deny it any longer, you know. So now, that's just a rare act, you know. Muslims aren't that way. That's not how they are. These are strange people who are doing this stuff, okay. All right, stage three. When Muslims establish a majority and achieve political power in an area, they're commanded to engage, commanded people to engage in offensive jihad. Hence, once Mecca and Arabia were under Muslims' control, they received the call to fight all unbelievers. Look at Surah 9, 29. Fight those who believe not in Allah. Is that clear? Any problems with that, you think? Nor the last days. Now watch. Nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah. Okay, who do they fight? They fight those who don't believe in Allah, and they fight those who don't agree with what Allah teaches. So basically, you know what this verse is saying? Fight those who eat bacon. You might think that's simplistic, but that's the truth, people. And where do you think they got those dietary laws from? <laughs> they got them from the Jews. All right? That's where they got them. So if you eat bacon, you're, hold, you're not holding forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah, and you're to be fought. And his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth from among the people of the book. Who are the people of the book? That's Jews and Christians. And you see that in the, in the Quran. That's what it's talking about. People of the book are Jews and Christians. Until they pay jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. In other words, if Christians won't submit to Allah... They at least have to pay the jizya and say, okay, we're, we're wrong. We're wrong for not believing in Him, but we'll pay you a tribute tax and you just kind of leave us alone. Now, notice this verse doesn't order Muslims to fight oppressors. Fight those who believe not in Allah. If they don't believe in Islam, if they're people of the book, then you fight them. Now, remember the principle of abrogation. Those passages written later take precedence. Look at Siha al-Bukhari. 
The last complete surah, which was revealed to the prophet, was Baraz. All right? So this is referring to Surah 9 that we just read. Surah 9 was one of the last chapters of the Quran. The Quran, people, is not written in chronological order. All right? So, no, you read the first surah, that, no. You have to figure out the time when that surah was written to know, you know, what's going on with it. Because it's not chronological at all. Surah 9, there's 114 of these surahs, chapters, basically, call them surahs, in the Quran. Surah 9 was the last one written according to Sahih al-Bukhari. All right? We also find many violent commands in Islam's most trusted collection of ahadeth. All right, traditions containing Muslims' teaching. In the Hadith, the, their, their teachings, for, for example, in Siha al-Bukhari 69.24, Muhammad said, I have been ordered to fight the people till they say, none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. So that's, they're just going to fight everyone until they, we just say, no one's supposed to be worshipped but Allah. Okay? Uh, Siha Muslim 30 says, Muhammad said, I've been commanded to fight against people so long as they do not declare there is no God but Allah. Surah Muslim 43.66, Muhammad said, I will expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslim. He pretty much did that before he died. Here again, the criterion for fighting people is that the people believe something other than Islam. It's clear then that when Muslims rose to power, peaceful verses in the Quran were abrogated by verses commanding Muslims to fight people based on their beliefs. Islam's greatest scholars acknowledge this. For example, Ibn Kathir is one of Islam's greatest commentators on the Quran sums up stage three like this. Therefore, all people of the world should be called to Islam. If any one of them refuses to do so, or refuses to pay the jizya, they should be fought till they're killed. All right? Okay, if you're not going to submit to Islam, again, this idea of submit, Islam, submit, that's what it means, submit. You don't submit to Islam, we're going to kill you. Now, since Muhammad obviously commanded his followers to fight unbelievers simply for being unbelievers, why do Muslims in the West deny this? Because Muslims in the West are in a stage one of jihad, and they're operating under the principle of taqiyya. You lie. Look at Surah 3. Let not the believers take disbelievers for their friends, in preference to believers. Whoso doeth that hath no connection with Allah, unless it be that he but guard yourself against them, taking, as it were, security. So, according to this verse, which uses a variation of the word taqiyya, meaning concealment, Muslims are not allowed to take friends of non-Muslims. However, if Muslims feel threatened by stronger adversary, they're allowed to pretend they're friendly. Okay, they're allowed, oh no, we're peaceful people. We, we don't believe in anything. They get you some verses from the Quran that came earlier. Ibn Kathar says, in this case, such believers are allowed to show friendship outwardly, but never inwardly. So pretend you're their friend. Abu Darda, one of Muhammad's companions, put it this way. We smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. Barack Obama, another Muslim, said this. Partnership between America and Islam must be based on what Islam is, not what it isn't. Oh, I agree. But what Islam is, is much more than a religion. Okay? Islam is an ideology with a clear socio-political agenda. We've got to understand it. It's not just, you know, oh, it's just a religion. You know, people are getting attacking Trump like crazy right now because he says, you know, stop them coming. He's just wording it wrong. All right? It's, he's not religious persecution. We need to stop this ideology that wants to take over America and wants to kill all Americans. There's no such thing as separation of church and state in Orthodox Islam. Islam includes a mandatory and highly specific legal and political plan for the whole society. It's called Sharia. 
Western notions of democracy and freedom are in opposition to orthodox Islam. Mankind must be controlled by Islamic law in total and not be allowed to stray from the authority of Allah. Islam is thus a totalitarian, utopian worldview. If you got problems with our freedoms being taken away in this country now, you wait. England already has several Sharia courts set up. It's coming here. They're fighting for it now in this country. The fact that freedom of religion does not exist in Muslim countries is evidence. All right, all you got to do is check out some Muslim countries. Check out Saudi Arabia, countries that Muslims are in the, you know, dominance in and they are under Sharia law and then boy, you're in trouble. If you get caught in adultery, you get whipped. They say no more than a hundred lashes. Okay? If you are an apostate, you get killed. They kill you. Catch you with the Bible, they'll kill you. All right? That's apostasy. You can't be doing anything. You know, these are the countries that we're friends with. All right? And, and see, we, ISIS is beheading people. That's cruel. That's barbaric. Saudi Arabia beheaded 20 people recently. Oh, you don't know, you don't hear about that? That's okay though. That's Sharia law. They're just carrying out their law. To understand Islam's political orientation, Just look at Sharia law. It orders death for Muslim and non-Muslims. Anybody that criticizes Muhammad, remember Muhammad's perfect man. You criticize him. Remember what just happened in Paris because they had a cartoon thing where they were drawing pictures of Muhammad. You're not allowed to draw pictures of Muhammad. Muhammad himself said, "No representation of me." All right. So he's a perfect man. You want to, you know, this guy's perfect. You got to imitate this man. As written in the Quran, Quran, Sharia is the law of Allah. Any other form of government is sin. It's the duty of every Muslim to keep striving until all governments have been converted to Sharia law. Barack Obama said, "Throughout history, Islam has demonstrated through words and deeds the possibility of religious tolerance and racial equality." What in the world world is he living in? I mean, what fantasy land does this man live in? Does he not understand history at all? Well, you know, the problem is, I really believe, he's a Muslim. It's his goal to institute Sharia law in this country. He's doing everything he can to destroy this place. According to the Voice of the Martyrs, you heard of them, right? 160,000 Christians are killed annually because of their faith. The vast majority being killed by Muslims. If Islam claims to be a religion of peace... Why is there so much oppression in every Muslim country? Why? It's a religion of peace. You should go to Saudi Arabia and not have to worry about getting your head lopped off. Though the numbers are not clear, depending on who you read, I think what is obvious is that Islam is the greatest murder machine in history, bar none. Some numbers people give are possibly exceeding 250 million dead, possibly one third to one half or more of those killed by war or slavery in history can be traced to Islam. According to Jihad Watch, the Quran's commandments to Muslims to wage war in the name of Allah against non-Muslims are unmistakable. They are furthermore absolutely authoritative and they were revealed late in the prophet's career and so cancel and replace earlier instructions to act peaceably. Without knowledge of this principle, he's talking about the, the abrogation there, of abrogation, Westerners will continue to misread the Quran and misdiagnose Islam as a religion of peace. Islam is a religion that pretends to be peaceful when Muslims are too weak to wage war. Now, listen, there are many Muslims in Western countries who aren't violent. Many Muslims in the West love peace and they love tolerance. But they don't get this from Islam. They get it from the West and now they're reinterpreting Islam based on the Western values. Because this is not 
taught in the Quran. Either way, fighting non-Muslims Muslims and conquering the world in the name of Allah is always the goal. That's the goal of Islam. Now, I believe that many Western Muslims are peaceful people that are just not well educated about their own religion. They don't really know it's a violent thing. I watched the testimony last week of a doctor, and he, when he was in medical school, he was a Muslim. In medical school, he said when the Twin Towers fell, he was shocked because he just thought that's not that doesn't represent Islam. And so he said, I'm going to study Islam, and I'm going to study Christianity. So he started studying both. He is now a Christian, very outspoken Christian. He finished, he's got his medical degree, he's a doctor, but he still speaks, and he preaches the gospel of Christ very powerfully, very boldly. And he says, just look at the Quran, look at what it says. See, here's a Muslim who, who didn't know. He didn't know it was a violent religion until he started studying it. And then he found out, wow, that stuff's in there? Most Muslims don't crack the Quran. They don't know what it says. Just like most Christians don't crack the Bible open. You know, if their preacher said it, they believe it. That's all they know. It's the same thing with them. They don't understand. So I don't want you to get the idea that, you know, every Muslim's out to kill us. I have friends that are Muslim. All right? But they're, you know, it's just like any other thing. You know, you got Christians who, they, yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean to them? Nothing. They says they're a Christian. They don't even go to church. They don't do anything, okay? And then you got all different levels of Christianity. Well, the same with them. They just say they're Muslim. They were born that way. You know, they can't, they don't dare apostatize because you could be killed for that. So they just, they're Muslims. Alright? For dedicated Muslims, there are only two possible situations to be in. Fighting unbelievers, or takiyah, pretending to be peaceful while preparing to fight unbelievers. Alright? That's basically it. Either way, fighting non-Muslims and conquering the world in the name of Allah, that's the goal. Alright? That's all there is. That's the only goal that there is. So, Islam is a violent religious ideology that will destroy anything in its way. Our leaders and the media are either lying to us or they're willfully ignorant of these facts. And I'm going to go with the lying. I don't think anybody's this ignorant of history. Sahih al-Bukhari, 69.22, Allah's messenger said, if anyone changed his Islamic religion, just kill him. You wonder why it's the fastest growing religion out there? <laughs> well, the Quran teaches all Muslims to kill one another. That's what it, you know, anybody that's not part of that, kill them. Islam is our enemy, people. I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that very clearly. Stay with me. It's our enemy. And the Quran teaches Muslims, fight those who disbelieve in Allah. We don't believe in Allah. We don't hold forbidden what they hold forbidden. I eat bacon. We are to be fought against. Islam is our enemy. And let me ask you something. What did Yeshua say we are to do to our enemies? Oh, you don't like this part, do you? Matthew 5, 43-44. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our Lord Yeshua had a non-violent message. While some people have betrayed the peaceful message of Yeshua in history, there's no doubt about that, the teaching of Yeshua have a constant tone of peace, Service, love, humility. Yeshua is called the Prince of Peace. He never told us to kill anyone. He disdained violence. His followers echoed this command of peace. So I believe that we are called to love Muslims. We are to treat them in the way we want to be treated. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. But... Hang on for the butt, okay? This is important. It is my conviction that if they try to kill me or my family, they will be met with strongest resistance that I can put up. All right? I don't believe we just lay down and let people kill us. All right? We're to love them. When I run into a Muslim, when I'm with them on the street, when I meet them at the gym, whatever, I'm to treat them with love and respect. But I tell you what, if they decide they want to kill me or harm my family, we'll see who kills who first, okay? I agree with Jerry Falwell Jr. You won't hear me say that very often. 
You never hear me say that, probably, all right? But he came out and he told the students at Liberty, arm yourselves, carry guns, be willing to protect yourself, get trained, get a weapons permit, and carry a gun, and let's not let happen here at Liberty University what's happening around the country. Because if a terrorist comes in and starts shooting, guess what? Shoot back. Save a lot of lives that way, okay? Yeshua told his followers in Luke 22, 36, and he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along likewise, also a bag. Now watch this. Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Wait a minute. I got to sell something that's really important to me, a coat to keep me warm, to keep me alive. I got to sell my coat and buy a sword. That's right. Do you think it was important for them to have a sword if they had to sell their coat? Do you think they had a sword for what? Cutting up their food? No, it was for protection. They were never told to go out and be the aggressors, but they told them, have a sword because I think it is fine for Christians to defend themselves under attack. I know we hear constantly on Voice of the Martyrs, you know, these people just seem to sit there and let the people come in and kill them. That won't happen here. We're going to fight back. And I think it is right to fight fight back. I think armed people save lives by making evil people think twice before trying to do something. I mean, over and over, statistics show, you know, a, a robber or anybody, they're going for the weakest victim. If they think there's going to be opposition, they think twice about that. They just don't do it. All right. Oh, I... I don't know. I just could say so much more, but I want you to understand, okay? This is the goal of Islam, world conquer, world domination, every knee bow to Allah, all right? That's their goal. They're our enemy, but we're called to love our enemies. Treat them with respect, be kind to them, love them, unless they bring resistance against us. And then, like I said, for at least for my part, right here, right now, my AT&T position is I'm fighting back with everything I got, and I got a few things. All right, let's pray. I'll get to that question in one minute, all right? Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word, to look, Father, at what Islam says from its own writings. Father, I pray you'd give us a discerning heart. Help us to walk the balance, Lord, that we would be people not known for violence, not known for hurting others, but loving, caring people, Lord. May the truth of your word be revealed through our lives, Father. Help us to wake up this nation, Lord. Father, I pray for a revival. Dear God, we need the church to wake up and see where it's going. We need the church on its knees before you, Yahweh, worshiping, serving you again, that you would return this country to some sanity. Give us grace, Lord. We beg for your mercy. In Yeshua's name, amen.